From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, it is that time of year again. No, not the holidays. It's flu season. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well, recently, the Food and Drug Administration approved the first new flu treatment in nearly 20 years. But the FDA reminds people it's not a replacement for getting a flu shot. Not by a long shot. Ah. <laughs> On today's program, we'll discuss flu and other vaccine topics with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll hear about new research on ovary removal and chronic kidney disease. And we'll talk Thanksgiving food safety. That's this week's program. Up next. Well, last year, Tracy, it was a difficult, if not a brutal, influenza season. More than 900,000 people were hospitalized and more than 80,000 Americans died of the flu during the winter of 2017-18. That according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, it's true, most of those deaths were in people over the age of 65, but the flu also killed 180 young children and teenagers, more than any other year since the CDC began using its current surveillance methods. Recently, the Food and Drug Administration approved a new flu treatment, the first new treatment in 20 years, but the FDA has made it clear it is not a replacement for the flu vaccine. Exactly. Here to discuss all things flu is the head of Mayo Clinic's <laughs> Vaccine Research Group, Dr. Gregory Poland. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Poland. Thank you. For all things flu. There we go. <laughs> Good to have you here, Dr. Poland. Thank you. you know, I've heard your voice when it sounded a little bit better. You don't have the flu, do you? I don't have the flu, <laughs> but I do have a laryngitis uh, that I'm recovering from, from a, a upper respiratory viral infection. How can you tell the difference between that and the flu? That's a great question. My wife asked me that. When you have influenza, the classic symptoms are fever, muscle aches, really sore throat. I don't have those. I have, you know, runny nose, uh, that kind of thing. More like a cold. More like a Mm -hmm. viral upper respiratory infection that resolves on its own and that you don't need antibiotics for. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Any predictions about this year's flu season? No way to know. Um, what I can say is that the components of the flu vaccine based on last year were changed and are consistent with the viruses that are circulating worldwide. The problem with this virus is it can mutate like that and change, and that happened last year. And people, you know, began to think, well, is it worth getting the flu vaccine? Am I getting any protection? The answer is yes. Even though you might develop symptoms, you didn't develop pneumonia, you didn't get hospitalized, and you didn't die. I do recall last year hearing that it was a large number of young people, of children, yes. who passed away because yeah. of the flu. So that part of what Dr. Shives was saying in our intro didn't surprise me. But 80,000 Americans, yes. I don't know that I heard that number last yeah. year. That's a lot of people. It really is. And, and, and let me just mention that you know those are modeling numbers. In other words, we can't actually go to every home and count who died. This is the important point because people think, well, it's just the flu mm-hmm. and they don't realize that what, how influenza kills people is not usually by the primary infection. It's the complications. Mm-hmm. It's the diabetic whose diabetes goes out of control. 
It's the person with heart disease who has a, a heart attack or a stroke as a result. So when you actually look at what brought people into the hospital and then backtrack, you find out, oh, they had influenza mm-hmm. or influenza symptoms the week or two before this. So we give this vaccine primarily to prevent the complications. And that's such a hard thing to get across to people. It's not, well, I'm taking this so that I won't have a sore throat. You're taking this vaccine and we're recommending it so you don't have the severity or the complications that this virus can cause. It's not a benign virus. So let's talk about the vaccine. I know uh, I looked on the CDC site and it said you really ought to get it by the end of October. I did. I don't think Tracy's gotten hers yet. Right under the bus. <laughs> what? Look at him. I brought one with me, Tom. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> so who should get the flu vaccine? And let's talk also about the the dose and what you recommend for seniors. Yeah. Well, you have asked the right person <laughs> because uh, while it took me seven years, in 2010, the CDC finally accepted my recommendation, unanimously voted that all Americans, six months and older, all Americans should annually receive a flu vaccine. That was your idea? That was mine. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. So Mayo Clinic <laughs> If it deserves, would only come true. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, so, so that's really important, and that particularly covers the younger children. Now, when you get to older adults, and I'm in that age group now, we have the highest rates of complication from influenza. So what do you do? Because that's also the age group that doesn't respond well to the vaccine. Well, there are now three vaccines. So this issue in American medicine and that Mayo Clinic has really been a leader in this idea of personalized or individualized medicine, this is coming true in the vaccine field. We have eight, nine different vaccines. We can give the right vaccine to the right person the right dose. When it gets to older people, three vaccines now that are particularly effective in older people. So when you're 65 and older, you ask your healthcare provider for one of the vaccines that's meant specifically for older adults. Now, last year you just had two. As I recall, you Correct. had the, the high dose and they had the adjuvanted, which would kind of jack well, up they're, your they're, immune system. Yeah, and, the, and there's the recombinant one. The adjuvanted one is the one that got added last year. Okay, yeah. so the three are the high dose, the recombinant and the recombinant. So recombinant. Those three. Okay. So if you're a senior, yeah. and senior means 65 and older, yes, you need to ask to make sure that you get one of those three. Correct. And uh, a lot of times, you know, people get their flu vaccine at uh, alternative sites. Some, like a pharmacy, for example, smaller pharmacies might not carry that. So you need to ask. What about the nasal vaccine? The nasal vaccine is now recommended again this year. What happened is that the process that they used when they moved to adding the fourth strain decreased the efficacy of the vaccine, so it was not recommended last year. They've changed that, and it's now available again. So let's say that I'm not 65, but uh, I've had a history of having had the flu previously, and I know I don't want to get it again. Could I get the high dose? Could I say, you know, I'm 60, I'd like, I'd like the high dose? Yeah. Because, I mean, it's got four times as much an- antigen, right? Yeah. Four well, times and, as you know, powerful? The, the, the three vaccines we talked about for older people are about 30-plus percent more effective than the standard vaccine in that age group. So your question really is one of, can a physician give a vaccine 
what's called off-label. In other words, it's not approved by the FDA for somebody who's age 60, but could a physician do that? And the answer is yes. You'd want to record why you did that. There would need to be, you know, a defensible reason for it. You could, depending on your insurance coverage, run into difficulties with them covering the cost of that vaccine. But yes, it can be done. I think you're only 30, but you ought to get the high dose. (laughs) I will. I will leave here and go and take care of that business. Um, You said it at the beginning, but I think it bears repeating because even your wife was a little concerned about what is or what is not the flu. Let's do a list. What is the flu and what is not the flu? So let's take a uh, just a respiratory virus, okay? Now, there can be overlap between this, but we'll just take the classic case. Itchy eyes, runny nose, maybe a little bit of a cough. That's it. Influenza, classic. Very fast onset of severe muscle and joint aches, sore throat, fever. It's not a day or two. It's longer than that. You don't typically have a runny nose. You don't have nausea and vomiting. And when you have that, depending on the complications or depending on your age group or other medical problems that you have, there's a new drug available to treat. A single dose decreases symptoms within 24 hours. But here's the proviso. you got to get the drug within 48 hours of symptoms. And there is a test for the flu, right? You can do a throat swab and they can tell you what in an hour or four hours? Within an hour or two. It's called point of care testing. So you go into a a, a, a continuity clinic, an emergency room, anything like that, urgent care, and they can tell you, do you have influenza or not? And you got to take that drug. How many drugs are available now? So the ones that tend to be used are Tamiflu and now this new drug. And the reason for it is that These influenza viruses can quickly develop resistance against these antiviral drugs. The advantage of this new drug is it even treats those drug-resistant viruses. It treats avian viruses. So this is the first new flu drug in 20 years, has a unique mechanism of action, so we're very excited about it. Zofluza? Zofluza. Zofluza. And how do I protect myself from getting the flu finally? Well, there's a variety of things. The most important is you get a vaccine. Right. And the other thing (laughs) is you stay away from sick people (laughs) and you keep your hands out of your eyes, nose, and mouth and you wash your hands frequently. Let me just say one other thing because this is so much in the news. Influenza and influenza vaccines are not a political issue. They are a health issue. It is a medical issue. And we recommend as physicians that everybody get this vaccine because of the problems and the complications we see. These are safe vaccines. Another change this year is any vaccine licensed in the U.S., if you have egg allergies, no matter how severe those allergies, you can get any influenza vaccine. We still ask about egg allergies to be cautious and to be sure we watch you but there is no detectable egg protein in today's vaccine. All right, there you go. Everything you wanted to know about the flu and flu vaccines, we're talking with a Mayo Clinic expert, Dr. Greg Poland. So, Dr. Poland, let's talk now about the HPV vaccine. Mm. Um, And we also know that there's a lot of people walking around who are carrying this virus. Tell us about that. You know, I think one thing to note is that you can't tell 
who has it. Now, if they have genital warts, you can tell, but most people you can't tell. Almost everybody who's sexually active in the U.S. will get infected with this virus. It is out of control. And that's why this vaccine was developed. Traditionally, we've only given it up to the age of 26. This new studies have been done. We have a nine valent. There are over a hundred different types of this virus. So there are nine of them in this vaccine. They are the ones that cause cancer and genital warts, which by the way, the genital warts, there is no cure for. Once okay. you got them, you got them. Yeah. And, and this virus causes about seven different cancers. So as the way I tell people, HPV is sexually transmitted cancer, and we can prevent that. But why did they raise the age? Because I thought that you could only get it to age 26, or it was very important to get it when you're young, because if you had become sexually active, you probably already had it, and it was too late. Yeah, so fortunately, most many people who get infected with it will resolve it, but many will not. You can't tell who will and who won't, so we immunize everybody. Um, and what has happened is with the new vaccine, the, the Gardasil 9 is what it's called, they found that you can indeed induce protective levels of antibody all the way up to 45 in men and women. So the question comes up, what happens if somebody we know had an infection? Well, they probably only got infected with one of the types or maybe two. Remember that this vaccine has nine, so we're still trying to protect them against the other types. What what types of problems, you've already said the cancer, but what yeah. happens if you have HPV? Well, typically what happens is um, one of two things. The later onset or development of a cancer. So almost all the head and neck cancers in the U.S. are due to HPV. Causes penile, uh, anal, cervical, vaginal cancers. These These are bad actors and sometimes hard to pick up. And the treatment for them is not very easy. Um, so that's one issue. The second issue is genital warts. Uh, believe it or not, we have clinics now around the U.S. where, in particular, young women are coming in and their airway is lined mm. with genital warts. The only thing we can do is laser one by one. It's extraordinarily painful. And they will face this the rest of their life. Because they keep coming back. Because they keep coming back. There's no cure. Oh, say it isn't so. You have a clinic for that. Yes. Young women. Yes. Now, is it also true that uh, there are more cases of uh, oral cancer, cancer of the mouth, tonsil, et cetera, caused by HPV than cervical cancer cases? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that? It's incredible. Yeah. It's hard to believe. And, and people, people are not aware of this. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what the typical response just to deal with it is that, Parents will say, well, my child's not sexually active and, you know, they're not going to get this disease. Oh, yes, they will. Oh, Oh, yes, they will. Now up to age 45. Yes. Two doses up to the age of 15. After that, three doses. All right. And a month apart, as I recall? Yeah, they basically go zero, one, and six. Okay. So you could get that, too. (laughs) (laughs) While you're over there getting your flu shot. (laughs) All right. Thanks, so, Dr. Shive. Before, <laughs> before we talk about Shingrix, I want to ask you, uh, there are a lot of, of children now, it seems, and that their parents aren't having them vaccinated against anything. I assume this is a huge concern for you. Did you say not getting? Not any, getting. Yeah, this not is not getting vaccines. This is this is my nightmare, Tom. I mean, these are diseases 
that you and I, through medical school and training in our practice, we have watched people die or their lives be irreversibly changed by these infections. Um, and, and yet, I, I mean, literally, literally, I've torn my hair out over this. The, we live in a culture where people tend to give more credence to celebrities than scientists. The way I've said it to my colleagues is, uh, guess what? Ignorance does kill. Yeah. Well, everybody needs to listen to this podcast, for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's so much good information, and yeah. what you've just talked about is so important. All of this is a balance of risk versus benefit. Now, And uh, let me be completely honest. No vaccine's 100% effective. No vaccine's 100% safe. In fact, nothing in our experience of anything we do in our lives is 100% safe. So wisdom resides in looking at the data and getting the most benefit for the least risk. Every time that's been done around the world over decades, vaccines come far, far ahead of any risk. We have 30 seconds left to talk about Shindrix. Yeah. So is it available? First of all, it's been in short supply. Second of all, I had that. You're not old enough to get it, and it makes your arm pretty sore. (laughs) That's because there's an adjuvant in there, and that's what makes it so powerful. This vaccine is about 97% effective, even in older adults, whereas the other vaccine that we had, that protection tended to wear off after about five years. So it is a two-dose vaccine, the demand has been beyond what the manufacturer thought, and so they probably won't catch up until the first quarter of 2019. What if I've already had shingles? Do I still need to get vaccinated? Absolutely. Okay. You definitely get recurrent shingles. All right. All right, everybody over the age of 50, Shingrix, another one you got to get, but yeah. you're not there. Uh, I think I might be. <laughs> We've been talking about uh, vaccines with the head of Mayo Clinic's Vaccine Research Group, Dr. Greg Poland. Dr. Poland, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss new research on ovary removal and kidney disease. And we'll talk Thanksgiving food safety. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Using e-cigarettes, a practice often referred to as vaping, has been touted as a safe alternative to tobacco cigarettes. More research is needed to understand all the effects of vaping, but it's clear that vaping can negatively affect health. E-cigarettes are battery-operated devices that heat a liquid and turn it into an aerosol to be inhaled. The solutions in e-cigarettes typically contain vegetable glycerin or propylene glycol as the main ingredients, along with nicotine, flavorings, and other additives. One of the primary concerns about e-cigarettes is that most contain nicotine, which is highly addictive. Once you become dependent on nicotine, it's extremely difficult to stop using it. Attempts to quit can lead to various symptoms such as strong cravings, anxiety, irritability, restlessness, difficulty concentrating, depressed mood, frustration, anger, increased hunger, insomnia, constipation, or diarrhea. Studies have shown that long-term e-cigarette smokers are exposed to as much nicotine as people who smoke regular cigarettes. Now, nicotine dependence in teens and young adults is particularly concerning because when a person is younger than 25, the brain's still developing. Exposing a developing brain to an addictive drug such as nicotine can potentially lead to permanent alterations in brain chemistry. That can disrupt the growth of connections within the brain that control learning and attention. It also may 
may make the brain more vulnerable to other forms of addiction in the future. So at this point, the potential long-term effects of e-cigarette smoking beyond nicotine addiction have not been explored thoroughly. However, various short-term negative health consequences have been associated with vaping. One study found people who had smoked e-cigarettes for seven months had shortness of breath, cough, and fevers. Some e-cigarette vapor contains ingredients that could be toxic, such as nickel, tin, lead, benzene, and formaldehyde. Long-term exposure to these substances in e-cigarette vapor could potentially lead to injury and disease, including cancer, and can affect reproductive health. Another study showed teens and young adults who had tried e-cigarettes had about a three-and-a-half times higher odd of smoking tobacco cigarettes than those who had never used e-cigarettes. The bottom line, vaping poses health risks to teens. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A recent Mayo Clinic study found that premenopausal women who have had their ovaries removed have an increased risk of developing chronic kidney disease. Previous research conducted in animals has shown that the female hormone estrogen actually helps protect the kidneys. That led Mayo Clinic researchers to wonder how removing both ovaries would affect kidney function in older women. And here to discuss is co-author of the study, Mayo Clinic nephrologist, Dr. Andrea Kata. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kata. It's nice to meet you. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Dr. Kata, nice to have you on the program. And an interesting subject. So take us back, if you would, to the, to the animal studies that led you to study this in humans. Did someone have a theory that estrogen was did somehow protect the kidneys? Yes, um, and this sort of stemmed from really observations in humans. It's rare it kind of goes from humans back to animals and <laughs> back to humans again. But women um, tend to have a slower progression of chronic kidney disease than men up until the age of menopause where the rates kind of become similar. And so there was this observation for a long time that maybe there was a protective effect of being a premenopausal woman and perhaps of estrogen and sort of protecting the kidneys and preventing progression of chronic kidney disease. And so there was uh, then animal studies sort of looking at this in, um, in many different ways, but um, estrogen does seem to protect uh, the kidneys. It pre- um, prevents scarring, has some uh, beneficial vascular effects as well. And those sort of observations and humans and animals kind of set the stage for lo- this study that we wanted to look at premenopausal women who have their ovaries removed, what happens to their risk. Are you sort of suggesting that everybody, males and females, have chronic kidney disease if they live long enough? <laughs> There is a certain, yes, there is a risk of developing chronic kidney disease. Actually, you know, everyone loses some kidney function with aging. I mean, that's something that we know, um, that we know happens. Um, the, these definitions of chronic kidney disease are, you know, sort of applied similarly in men and women. Um, and there is some question of whether that's appropriate. You know, should we be using the same cutoff for what defines chronic kidney disease in men versus women, knowing these different rates of progression? But that topic aside, it does seem clear from both the observational data as well as these sort of initial animal studies that estrogen is probably good for the kidneys. How we translate that information into our care of patients is is another question. Well, before we get to that, just as a definition, as you were saying, what what is chronic kidney disease? That's a great question. So, um, so the kidneys' um, main job is to basically filter the blood of waste products and get rid of that waste in the urine. 
Um, and so um, chronic kidney disease is really defined by a reduction in the, the ability of the kidney to filter the blood and, and clear that waste from the body. And so we measure that with something called the estimated glomerular filtration rate, which is a mouthful, but it's really the amount of blood that your kidney is cleaning and filtering in a minute. Um, and so that um, GFR that we've set as being abnormal is at about a level of 60. And that's the criteria we use to define chronic kidney disease in our study. So as the kidneys get older, they're less able to do the work that's needed. That's why, as Dr. Shive said, you live long enough. Yes. Probably everyone will get this. Right, right. But estrogen from the ovaries, to bring us back around, yes. seems to be protective. So it, how did you figure that out in this study? How did you do it? Well, so um, this is a, a, a really interesting cohort. So Dr. Roca um, and the group at the Rochester Epidemiology Project had developed this cohort of women from the Olmsted County population, um, which uh, the group included women who had undergone surgical menopause, so it had both ovaries removed, prior to the natural age of menopause. So they had not gone through menopause yet. This was, they went at, you know, the time of their surgery and then matched them to a woman from the community who hadn't had this procedure and then followed them over about 15 years. Mm -hmm. And the goal of their study was really to look at what is the effect of estrogen on the woman as a whole? So what's the risk of mortality? What's the risk of developing all sorts of different chronic diseases? I'm sorry, I said chronic kidney diseases. I meant just diseases. I was sort of one track. Like Nephrology mind. Yeah, or osteoporosis. Or cardiovascular sure. disease, dementia, sure. um, you know, all sorts of um, disease processes. And they had published their results, I believe it was in 2016 in the Mayo Clinic proceedings showing that women who had had oophorectomy, bilateral oophorectomy, started to develop multimorbidity. So acceleration of the development of chronic kidney diseases, and they had an increased risk of mortality. And actually, in that study, they had looked at some sort of diagnostic codes for chronic kidney disease, and um, there was a signal there. It wasn't quite significant, but it um, piqued their interest, and they knew I was interested in sex differences in kidney disease, and so that's sort of how the, the study came came about. And you found that, in fact, women who had had their ovaries removed when they were younger, mm -hmm. when they became premenopausal, they were more likely to develop kidney disease. Exactly right. And both ovaries or just one? Both. Okay. For this study, we looked at both. Would you say to uh, women who have been advised when they're younger to have, it usually goes with hysterectomy, doesn't it? I mean, if you have yeah. a total hysterectomy, you mm -hmm. have the hyster. You have your uh, uterus removed plus your ovaries. Yes. Would you say save your ovaries if you can? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. It, and it's an important point because this study and to who the recommendation applies to. So this was not women who have, you know, BRCA mutations or very high risk of breast or ovarian cancer because of sure. family history. So that's that's a different conversation. So this was women who are really at average risk for ovarian cancer um, and um, they had in our group, it was 90% of um, the women with ophorectomy had it at the time of hysterectomy. So that is, you're right, that's the most common uh, reason that they're having it. And there's been a big shift. I mean, it used to be that um, the feeling in the obstetrical community or the, the obstetrical and gynecology community was, well, let's just take them out. Get We're going to be in there, you yeah. know, um, the, and this will decrease your risk of ovarian cancer, and we don't have a great screening test, which is true. It does uh, mm. decrease that risk by about 80 to 90%. It's actually, interestingly, not 100%, but it's <laughs> 80 to 90% reduction in that risk. 
Um, but now I think the pendulum has swung and we're realizing, well, the ovaries are doing something beyond just reproduction. They're an endocrine organ. So they're doing things before you go into menopause, certainly with estrogen affecting all your body tissues, bone, brain, kidneys, what have you. And then even after menopause, they're secreting testosterone, androstenedione, and those can be converted peripherally to estrogen. And so you're removing all of that endocrine function, um, which is... Save the ovary, sounds like to me. Save the ovary. So there has truly been a paradigm shift in the minds of most gynecologists that if you don't need to take the ovaries out when you do do a hysterectomy, save them. Exactly right. And I think... Um, this is becoming um, more and more, I think more and more people are aware of this. Um, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has sort of put out a statement saying, you know, you should really think about this. And But there are other people that say, gosh, I've practiced this way forever. You need to, you know, sh- you know ovarian cancer is devastating. And the, f- the flip side is, well, increased mortality, cardiovascular risk, <laughs> dementia, you know, chronic kidney disease. Those are also pretty devastating. So you have to really... Uh, explain this to women prior to proceeding. And finally, what's your next research project going to be? So I'm very interested in this uh, relationship between uh, estrogen and kidney function. And so what um, effect does changes in reproductive function and estrogen secretion have on the progression of chronic kidney disease? And um, should we be trying to think of different therapies um, that might help women with uh, chronic kidney disease um, preserve their kidney function for longer as well as their, their quality of life? All right, we've been talking about how removing the ovaries at a younger age may increase your risk for chronic kidney disease, and that may not be all. Our guest is Mayo Clinic nephrologist, kidney specialist, Dr. Andrea Kata. Dr. Kata, thanks so much. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll get tips for keeping your food safe this Thanksgiving from a USDA expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Well, next week, American families will gather to celebrate Thanksgiving. The best part of the day? Well... Turkey. Turkey. Well, for some people, it's that delicious Thanksgiving turkey and all the fixings. Mm -hmm. But if you're in charge of making the bird, which you probably are, Mm -hmm. are you a little nervous? No. What kind of turkey do you buy? Should you get a fresh or frozen one? How do you store the turkey before you cook it? Lots of questions. Well, luckily, there is help for those of us who are hosting that big meal. The U.S. Department of Agriculture runs a meat and poultry hotline that will field thousands of calls about Thanksgiving food safety. But we're going to get some of those answers right here and right now on Mayo Clinic Radio. Joining us on the phone to discuss is the Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at the USDA, Carmen Rottenberg. Welcome back to the program, Ms. Rottenberg. Thanks so much. Hey, Carmen. Glad to have you with us. So I guess one of the, the first question would be, when do you buy your turkey? So it depends on if you want to buy a fresh or a frozen turkey. If you want to buy a frozen turkey, you can buy it many days ahead of Thanksgiving. If you want to buy a fresh turkey, you should really buy it within one to three days before Thanksgiving and keep it in your refrigerator. The really important thing to keep in mind is if you buy a frozen turkey, uh, you need to thaw it safely. Do not thaw your turkey on the countertop. Uh, you can thaw it in the refrigerator, or you can even cook a frozen turkey from a frozen state, believe it or not. It takes about 50% longer to cook, so you have to factor that in on your Thanksgiving Day uh, meal preparation. But uh, but you absolutely can cook it from frozen. All right, and if it is frozen, you thaw it in the refrigerator. 
That's correct. And how many days does that, or days, is it usually days? Here's the answer. <laughs> Longer than you think, right, Carmen? <laughs> you, that's, you got it. That's right. Um, I have many times thawed, tried to thaw my Thanksgiving turkey in the refrigerator and found that when I pull it out, the outside is thawed, but the inside is still somewhat frozen. And you just have to factor that in with your cooking time, which is why it's so important that you have a keep a meat thermometer on hand to make sure that the cook, that the turkey is cooked to a safe internal temperature. But standard, it usually takes three to four days. If you have a larger turkey, um, it, it might take a day longer. And if it's still frozen a little bit or all the way still frozen, you've got that bag of everything inside the turkey cavity, it's okay to cook it with that in there? Yes, that's correct. That's what I recommend. Okay. And I always recommend that you not stuff your bird uh, with stuffing. Uh, it's tricky enough to get your, your turkey to the safe internal temperature of 165 degrees. If you then pack it with stuffing, uh, you have to make sure that that internal, the most innermost part of that stuffing in the bird is also cooked to 165 degrees. Uh, and, and oftentimes the outside of your bird, the, the breasts and the legs will be done and your, your stuffing still will be undercooked and could potentially have bacterial contamination from the inside of the bird. So I always recommend cook your stuffing in a separate casserole dish. If, if you do what grandma does and insist on cooking it in your turkey, then just make sure you have a food thermometer on hand to have a safe internal temperature of 165 degrees in the center of that stuffing. Uh, do you assume this bird is clean before you uh, cook it, or do you have to wash your turkey or no? You absolutely should not wash your turkey. And the reason is rinsing off a turkey does nothing to remove uh, any sort of bacterial contamination that may exist on the outside of the bird. And what it can do is it can splash dangerous pathogens onto your surfaces. So you can't see bacteria, you can't smell it. Um, but it can make people really sick. And so we recommend do not wash your bird in your kitchen sink. Um, even if you're planning to, you know, Lysol the sink afterwards, you may end up splashing the, the water onto other parts of your kitchen that you, you don't realize. So don't wash your bird. Uh, the safe way to kill any sort of bacteria that might be on uh, turkey or any meat that you're cooking is to make sure that you cook it. And have you seen cases of food poisoning from turkeys that were undercooked? Yes, actually, um, we know that right now there is a uh, there actually is sal- a salmonella outbreak associated with eating turkey that is undercooked or where there's been cross contamination in the kitchen. And uh, this is really important because even if you're cooking your turkey to the proper temperature, if you have handled the turkey and then handled other ready to eat foods without washing your hands properly, you could be contaminating other parts of your kitchen or other foods that you're serving your guests without realizing it. And so uh, we know that people get ill from salmonella. We know that uh, in the last year there's been over 100 people who have gotten ill from uh, turkey consumption, we believe, in particular, uh, as we're working with Centers for Disease Control on this um, outbreak investigation. And so it's really important. It's just a really important reminder that you need to uh, clean your surfaces, wash your hands uh, after you've handled any sort of raw meat or poultry, and make sure that you're cooking your turkey to the proper internal temperature. And then really getting your leftovers back in the fridge uh, within two hours of serving so that you can enjoy them the next day. What was the temperature of that the stuffing should be and that the bird should be? And does that little so, plastic thermometer that pops out, does that have any guidance whatsoever? <laughs> so it's an excellent question. I think the um, turkey manufacturers will have cooking instructions on the outside of the packaging, uh, which definitely consumers should follow those cooking instructions. And they have to be validated, meaning they have to have tested those cooking instructions um, in, in their kitchen to make sure that they are accurate. 
Um, and so the little piece that pops out of the, uh, uh, the turkey for that part of the bird, uh, you know, probably is correct. The issue is that if you, depending on what kind of roasting pan um, consumers are using in their own kitchen, uh, can, can have some uh, disparity in terms of how the underside of the turkey is cooked. And so you need to make sure that you're measuring the temperature of the bird at the thickest parts of the bird. So you need to do the innermost part of the thigh, the innermost part of the breast, and if you have stuffing inside your bird, you need to get the food thermometer all the way in the turkey, and you have to make sure that it's cooked to 165 degrees in each of those places. You know, people think that they can cut into a bird, and if the juices run clear, then that means that they're good to go, and it's just not accurate. You have to use a food thermometer. I I recommend a digital food thermometer because it's very easy to use and doesn't have to be calibrated, and really, you should be using a food thermometer all year long, but especially at Thanksgiving when most of us are cooking a a bird, uh, uh, a piece of meat that's much larger than we typically cook the rest of the year. It's just critically important that, that people use a food thermometer this Thanksgiving. All right. Did I hear you imply that if the leftovers are out for more than two hours, they you should discard them? That's correct. If right. the leftovers are not put away within two hours of serving, then um, you have you run the risk of having uh, bacteria grow very quickly at room temperature. All right. Any other questions? You've got a meat and poultry hotline, right? <laughs> yeah, we have a meat and poultry hotline, and and we staff it um, on Thanksgiving Day um, it, with with uh, with live people to answer your questions. It, it's one eight 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 MP hotline. Uh, that's for meat and poultry hotline. It's eight 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 six seven four six eight five four, and uh, it'll be open from eight a.m. to two p.m. Eastern time on Thanksgiving Day. Families can also access Ask Karen which is a portal on our website, askkaren.gov. Or, of course, they can go to foodsafety.gov any time of the year to find uh, temperature and cooking time um, on that foodsafety.gov website for a variety of meats. And I will just add one additional item, which is make sure that you're washing your hands uh, early and often. So before you start preparing foods and any time after you have touched any raw meat or poultry, you have to wash your hands. People think they can grab the salt shaker or grab the basil and sprinkle it on. Um, the problem is that you've then uh, cross-contaminated other areas of your kitchen, and salmonella can live on surfaces for up to 33 hours. So you don't want to make your guests sick, so make sure that you're washing your hands throughout meal prep on Thanksgiving Day. How long can you leave those leftovers in the fridge? Well, it depends, but you usually should eat them within three to four days of being in the refrigerator. All right, so bottom line, 165 degrees. Make sure you uh, cook it to that temperature. Cook the stuffing separately, and any leftovers that have been uh, out for more than two hours, you ought to discard them. That's right. Carmen, you have been most helpful. (laughs) Carmen Rottenberg, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at the USDA. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. That's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.